If you uh, would please turn to Daniel chapter 5. If you're using the Black Bible on the pew back, it's page 742. Daniel chapter 5. Our series on Daniel is covering the first six chapters, so we're almost at the end. Next week will be the last Daniel message. Uh, if you've been with us through Daniel, you'll know that Daniel is the account of the Babylonian captivity where the, the empire, the king of Babylon, had come into Judah as God had decreed and conquered them, took some of their, their best and brightest youths and brought them out of Judah, out of Jerusalem, and into Babylon. And as God had promised, that they, that was going to be a judgment on Israel for their sin that would last for 70 years. And then He would allow them to return. Um, so we've seen Daniel's account and those that were in his close circle of friends, another group of men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we've, we've heard their experiences here as they've been in exile in Babylon over the course of really their entire lives. They were teenagers when they came into Babylon. And now as we get into chapter 5, we're many, many years down. We're at the very, in fact, the very end of that period of captivity. We've so far had this king that we've been talking about, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. And he's been the central, a central fi- uh, figure here throughout the first four chapters. By the time we get to chapter 5, where we are today, a quarter century has passed since Nebuchadnezzar has died. You remember at the end of chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar humbled by God. And we saw this beautiful picture of the relentless pursuing grace of God in this man's life to humble him, to, to, to bring him to a point where he would acknowledge that he is not his own Savior, he is not God himself, but that the Most High, the God of heaven, truly reigns. He gave his life to the Lord. It's a beautiful passage there in, in chapter 4. And I said there that those were the last recorded words of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's passed away now. And again, it's been about 26 years since he has passed away. And Daniel is now an old man. Daniel is probably now in his 80s. Over the four, uh, excuse me, over the 26 years since the death of Nebuchadnezzar, there have been four new kings that have reigned in Babylon. All of them had very short tenures. You can imagine, there's only been 26 years. We're already on the fourth guy. So many of them were just in for, a, one of them was even in for one year. One was in for just a couple of years. They've had the, these very short tenures. And the empire is about to come to an end. There is another rising global power that has gained prominence that is on the scene. It is the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire as we get to chapter 5 here, is very much knocking on the door of Babylon ready to conquer them, ready to take them captive. And in fact, that's exactly what's happening here at the beginning of chapter 5. We are seeing the last night of Babylon's reign. The Persian army is literally right outside the walls and they are amassing their troops. They are surrounding the city. This is the end. Within 24 hours, the Babylonian Empire will be no more. And the Persian Empire will have handily defeated them and take over. Now what we'll see here as we get into the text in just a moment is that the king over Babylon at this time is a man named Belshazzar. 
And there's something interesting that I want you to know about Belshazzar and about this account here in Daniel chapter 5. The name Belshazzar has baffled historians for millennia because the only mention of him was found here in Daniel chapter 5. Any other outside historical records showing that when the Babylonian Empire fell and the Persian Empire came into prominence, they all recognized that there was a king in Babylon whose name was Nabonidus. So there was this question about the veracity and historicity of this book. Is this can we take this for, for being true? If this is the only mention of this, who's this Belshazzar guy? Well, I want you to know that in 1854, a British archaeologist by the name of John George Taylor was in the area of ancient Babylon and he was excavating a ziggurat. You know what a ziggurat is? It sort of looks like a pyramid, but it's kind of stepped up. Very similar shape though. He was excavating a ziggurat in the area there of Babylon and he found at the top of the monument, these four clay cylinders on the corners of the apex point of the ziggurat. And in those clay cylinders, there was historical writing that was put there when it was built. And in fact, it was clear that these were original parts of the top of the ziggurat, that they had been unseen and unread for 2,300 years. He was the first to have uncovered them. And these cylinders revealed that Nabonidus was indeed the fourth king to reign after Nebuchadnezzar. And it told, though, that he had installed his son, and it listed his son's name as Belshazzar, as the acting king while he was away traveling in distant lands, and that it was indeed during this period where Nabonidus was away that the Persian army came in and conquered Babylon, so that Belshazzar was the acting king. He was on the throne when that event happened. This was the first time in millennia that there was confirmation that the account here in Daniel chapter 5 was in fact historically accurate. So I'm telling you that for two reasons. The first reason is this. It's just another example of the trustworthiness of the Bible. Right? When we come to the Bible, we can read it knowing that God has truly inspired this text. It is trustworthy, even if we haven't figured everything out yet, we will, because it's true. The other thing I want to say about that, though, in in light of that, is that because the Bible is trustworthy, because it's true, we can take it not only as a historical document, but also one that's accurate in speaking to and diagnosing our own hearts. And that's what I want to encourage us to do today. The Word of God is an accurate diagnoser of our hearts. And again, this passage this morning is intended to do that. To reveal to us the danger of sin. The holiness of God. And, as we'll get to, which is not in this passage, but we'll get to the mercy of God again. Because I don't want to leave us where this leaves us. It's dark. So, I mentioned this is the last night of the Babylonian Empire. Even as the advancing army is surrounding the city, what is it that the acting king of Babylon is doing? What is Belshazzar doing? He's throwing a party. 
Let's read Daniel chapter 5. Here's the first thing I want you to get. In the, if you take notes, write this down. The first thing I want you to understand, even in the midst of danger, there is little concern. There was little concern. Verse 1, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar knows what's coming. They're aware that the Persian army is advancing. And yet rather than taking steps to fortify themselves or to mount a counterattack, Belshazzar decides that instead he's going to keep a regularly scheduled religious feast and throw a party. And so he literally invites thousands of people into this big banquet hall and they just drink and eat and be merry. There is this foolishness on their part that even as danger is lurking, there is very little concern. There's no concern shown. Why? Well, we, we can ask historians that question and, and they could say, well, the walls of the city were very high. It's perhaps thought that he just thought, well, it's impenetrable. They're advancing, but they're not going to get in. It's also been said that there were supplies enough in the city to sustain itself for some 20 years. So they, they, maybe they felt they could stave this off for a very, very long time. Whatever it was, this king felt he had very little cause for concern. And yet, I think the point of the passage here is not just that he somehow felt fortified in his walls or in his supplies, but that ultimately, secondly, this, his actions not only showed contempt of man, contempt of the Persians, but ultimately showed contempt of God. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them, they drank wine, and they praised the gods of gold and silver. Bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So you get this just really amazing picture of a man who not only has no concern for the fact that the Persians are knocking at the gate, but in his drunken state makes this stupid request. Go get all of the articles that came out of the temple in Jerusalem. All that, that Nebuchadnezzar, it says here his father. Nebuchadnezzar was not his actual father. He was his ancestral predecessor as king. Get those articles and bring them to me. Let's drink our wine from the, from the, the, the vessels of the temple of Jerusalem. Just a smack in the face of the one true God. And what we, what we understand is that Nabonidus, his actual father, had attempted, attempted to strengthen the Babylonian religion. So after Nebuchadnezzar, who again came to submit himself to the God of heaven, he dies and the, the successive kings kind of go back to their pagan worship. And so his father had really attempted to strengthen this religion. And so keeping with that act, this act by his son may have been an attempt to undo to further undo the influence, the godly influence of Nebuchadnezzar who had given honor to the God of Israel. And so I want you to put in your mind this picture of this moment. 
Because what we have is that we have this man who's showing absolute contempt for God, who's, who's literally grabbing onto the articles, the vessels of God, these symbols of the God of Israel in his drunken state and sort of wrapping his fingers around the neck of the goblets. Think of this. I think of this as a picture of him sort of just wrapping his fingers around the neck of God himself and throwing it back and slamming it down and saying, give me another. Absolute contempt. And so how does God respond to this blatant disregard of His sovereign lordship? Verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Seeing the hand of God brought fear to Belshazzar. I want to point, put up on the screen for you a painting that Rembrandt painted of this moment. This is a painting called The Feast of Belshazzar. And this is Rembrandt's depiction of this moment. You, 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 you I encourage you to look at this picture sometime. Maybe pull it up online and kind of zoom in on it. But you get this picture of here's this party, right? And all of a sudden this hand appears and is writing on the wall and the fear in their faces. Belshazzar goes from being this arrogant, haughty, wrapped his fingers around the the neck of God to all of a sudden to be this knee-knocking, pale, afraid shadow of himself. Suddenly, reality is beginning to set in for this foolish king. God has spoken into the moment. And it's as if to say that for Belshazzar, all is well and good until you suddenly realize you're not the one in control anymore. And we've seen this before, right? With Nebuchadnezzar, this sense of like, I'm the God, I'm the king. I'm the one in charge. And when their pride reaches that that pinnacle moment, the true God steps in and reveals, no, you're not. I am. And there's fear. There's a humbling that occurs. And what happens next is going to sound very familiar to you if you've been with us studying the book of Daniel lately. Let's read from verse 7 on through verse 16. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now just stop and consider that for a moment. This is the third time we've seen this happen, right? We see God speaking into the moment. He's done it with dreams through Nebuchadnezzar. Now he's done it with this writing on the wall with Belshazzar. And the first reaction is, bring me in the best that the world has to offer. Get the sorcerers. Get the Chaldeans. It's that same, that same godlessness that's on display here. And it's interesting here that 
I would think that the, the original readers of this, the, the, the Jewish audience that there was a, this was originally written to, they would know this was the last night. They would know that the kingdom was coming to an end. This was where God's judgment ended for them. And they would read this with some sense of humor. Who's this guy Belshazzar? First of all, he's not even really the king. He's an acting king. And he's sitting there with his knees knocking and his blood rushed out of his face and he's, he's making this promise to people like, hey, if you can do this thing for me, I'll make you third ruler in the kingdom. Right? He's thinking, I'm the second ruler. I'll make you the third. And there's got to be this sense of comedy like, really? Bro, like right now, you think you have any authority in the eyes of anyone who's looking at you? Just pride. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm, excuse me, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. And now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter but I have heard that you can give the interpretation and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. I love what happens in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Here's the next thing we need to recognize from this scene. Daniel was more concerned with truth and godliness than he was with shallow earthly gain. Daniel had no illusions of grandeur. It's interesting, if you, if you look back over the first chapters of, of Daniel, and we see that again, this, this scene has happened before. Nebuchadnezzar has made similar promises in the past. If you can show this interpretation, I'll, I'll clothe you with a robe and I'll put rings on your fingers and I'll make you a, a ruler over my household and all these things. Daniel's heard this before. And it's interesting that although we can certainly see in those first instances, Daniel wasn't swayed by those promises. He was faithful just to be a, a speaker of the truth, speaking truth to power, prophetic words from God to the rulers. He doesn't say ever before, I don't, you keep that stuff. But now in his 80s, it's like you can see the trajectory of his life. As he's continued to faithfully follow God, he's just become more and more certain, more and more assured of 
the sufficiency of the Lord. And so I, I, I kind of get that picture here. There's an encouragement to me as I think about this. A life lived faithfully following after the Lord should be a life of growth, right? And we should be growing in our godliness and our contentment with the Lord. I see that in Daniel's life so that now in his 80s, he can just look at this young drunk king and say, keep your, keep your garbage. I don't care about your stuff, but I'll give you the word. He had no illusions of grandeur. He'd been here before. His concern was for the proclamation of truth and for the repentance from sin. And so he recalls his dealings with Belshazzar's predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven among, from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom He will. And you, His son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Belshazzar was exposed to be a man without excuse. You knew this. God had written this not only for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit, but for your benefit, for all of our benefit. You knew. And yet you still chose to harden your heart. In other words, Belshazzar, you should have seen this coming. Verse 23. Sorry, I lost my place here. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of His house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and in whose are all your ways, you have not honored. That's the judgment of sin. I said earlier, we're all guilty of sin. That's that's the definition. It's, it's, it's the knowledge, and we'll see this in a bit. We all have this knowledge. We have an awareness that we are not the final authority, that, that there is something, there is a, a moral standard at a very minimum that, uh, that is above all things. We sense that in our, in our being. And yet to suppress that and to say, I'm not going to submit myself to it. I'm not going to seek after the God who exists or the God who made me, but instead I'm going to do for myself and even show contempt to that God. That's what sin is. It's just a blatant rejection and rebellion against the God who made us and His standards for what He expects in His holiness. And because of this sin, 
God's judgment on Belshazzar was swift and sure, ultimately resulting in his death. Verse 24, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel and parsin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. And notice he says it twice. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Did it mean anything? No. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is what I want us to recognize because last week we saw pretty much everything that we've seen up to this point. We saw the same thing happen in his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar's life. But what we saw there was we saw the relentless pursuing grace of God. Nebuchadnezzar had been marked out by God as a recipient of His grace. And Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself. He received that grace. He was saved from this very same stiff-necked contempt and rebellion. But, but this man, Belshazzar, his story is very different from Nebuchadnezzar's. In this story, we see that we're sort of left here at the end with this recognition that for him, there's no grace. There's no more grace. He's just done. Judgment. Death. What do we need to learn from Daniel chapter 5? Is this just Belshazzar's unlucky story? Or is there something for all of us to take from what we see in his life? Well, it's interesting that when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes some very difficult words for all of us. And the parallels between what Paul writes and what happens here in Daniel 5 in Belshazzar's life are stark. They're incredible. And I want you to look at it with me. It's in Romans chapter 1. That's what Taylor began to read for us a little bit earlier. If you flip over to Romans 1, which you'll find on page 939 if you're using that pew Bible, I want us to see these parallels. What must we learn from Daniel 5 with help from the book of Romans? Well, I want you to remember what's the setting at the beginning of Daniel chapter 5. I told you that the Persians are knocking at the gate, right? It's the last night of the Babylonian Empire's existence. They are about to come under attack. Danger, in other words, is looming. It's right outside the city walls. And yet inside, all we see is denial and self-indulgence, right? That's the setting. And there couldn't be a better metaphor for human existence than this. Trouble is lurking. Danger is right on the outside. And yet on the inside, denial and self-indulgence. When it comes to facing danger, we have one of two options. We can face it. We can recognize that it's there and admit we are in need of rescue. Or we can pretend that it's all well and good. 
and will die as fools. Look at Romans 1 and notice the exact parallels to what we just read in Daniel 5. The first one is this. Like Belshazzar, all men and women have been exposed as being without excuse. Romans chapter 1. You know, I told you to flip there and I didn't flip there myself. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. Just as Belshazzar had every opportunity to learn about God from what he should have seen and taken note of around him, all of us, all mankind, should be able to discern the existence of a holy God. To discern the fact that there is, there is righteousness and unrighteousness and that unrighteousness is judged. Verse 20 tells us since the very beginning of all God's, uh, since the very beginning that all of God's attributes have been clearly seen. They've been made clear. In other words, they're right before our eyes. And instead, as verse 18 says, sinful men and women suppress the truth. We literally hold down the truth. That's what the word means there. And I think back to Belshazzar and his holding down, his wrapping his fingers around the goblet, around the, the vessels of God. We hold it down. People know the truth about God, yet we don't allow this truth to work in our lives. We suppress it in order that we might live our own lives without the conviction of being under the truth of a God above us. Secondly, our sinful actions show our contempt of the true God. Just like Belshazzar, verse 21, for all they, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile, futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's the root of the problem. Sinful men and women don't give honor to God. This is what Belshazzar was judged for. Instead, it says we became futile in our speculations. What does that mean? It means that we, we come up with all kinds of explanations for the way the world operates. We come up with all kinds of reasons about why we can sort of, you know, ignore this, this fact that there is a God who made us and come up with justifications for why we can live in different ways because eh, there's there's lots of explanations there's lots of ways we can put spin on this we become according to scripture though futile in those speculations because we're denying the reality that's so clear god exists and he made us for himself and we're accountable to him as it says here in verse 28 since they did not see fit to acknowledge God 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, what, what the world calls open-minded, God calls closed-minded. What the world calls pluralism and tolerance, God calls depravity. And even in the midst of danger, in the midst of danger, like Belshazzar, our generation shows little or no concern. Romans 1.32, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Even though danger lurks, we exist in denial. In fact, throwing a party, right? Approving of those who do these things, just like Belshazzar. So what, is the, what does Paul want us to see? He wants us to learn the lesson. He wants us to, to, like Daniel, hear the prophetic truth of God. That seeing the hand of God ought to wake us up. It ought to strike holy fear into our hearts. Romans 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, For every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury." The picture Paul paints here is, it's an ugly one. And it's not a popular truth, right? This is truth that is, that is avoided by many. But that doesn't change the reality of it, does it? You know, there's, there's certain areas that I may not like driving through. There may be certain neighborhoods that I try to avoid, but my avoiding them doesn't change them or eliminate them, does it? God's description of sinners is not a pretty one, but we can't avoid it. He's saying, look, this is the condition of every human heart apart from repentance, apart apart from grace, apart from Christ. And finally, Paul says something that we ought to take note of as well, that as Christians, we ought to be more concerned with truth and godliness than with shallow earthly gain. We should speak this truth into our generation. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I'm eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I mentioned earlier this, when I began this message this morning, there's, 
Just like any other Sunday when we gather together, there's two kinds of people who are in this room. Those who have received the grace of God and those who are still under the wrath of God. God's judgment on all human sin, listen, God's judgment on all human sin will be swift and sure. Belshazzar is an example and a warning for all of us who would spit in the face of God. His judgment on sin will be swift and sure, resulting in death. And Paul echoes that in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, when he says, The wages of sin is death. Yet here's the good news. The good news is at the end of that verse, Paul says, and yet the free gift of God in Christ is available to us. The wages of sin is judgment. The wages of sin is death. And yet God has done something about that problem. If you're still in Romans 1, would you just flip over to chapter 5, Romans 5, and look at verses 6-9. through For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. That Perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. God's judgment on sin will be swift and sure, resulting in death. And yet in Christ we have this good news. His judgment on sin was sure and was swift, resulting in the death of His Son instead of us. Jesus came to bear the wrath of God for human sin. And all of us are guilty. All of us have need. The question is this, are you living your life like Belshazzar? Living in contempt? Living in denial? Rejecting the God who made you? Are you heaping up upon yourself more and more sin in that rebellion? If so, the judgment of God will rightly fall on you and will be swift and sure. The handwriting is on the wall. But the Gospel of Jesus Christ is available to us. When we recognize, like Nebuchadnezzar recognized, I'm not God. I need Him. I need Christ. Christ takes the wrath of God. Christ lets it all fall on Him. Christ offers me cleansing and forgiveness and hope and life. When we come to Him by faith in Christ, the gift of life is offered to us. Are you living like Belshazzar? Do you know others who are living that way? The handwriting's on the wall. How will you respond?
Christ extends the offer to you. Come to me. Lay down your burdens. Come to the cross. Confess your sin. I'll take it upon myself. I will make you clean. How will you respond? Father, I thank You that You've given to us this stark reminder that the human heart is desperately wicked. And who could know it? Who could understand it? It's hard for us to face that that reality. It's hard for us to to read a story like the story of of Belshazzar and and admit that we're, we're just like him apart from Christ. Yet Lord, by Your grace, You open our eyes to see that truth. And by Your grace, You you show us that we were were made for so much more. By Your grace, You enlighten our hearts to faith in Christ, to, to know that You are a good God. That judgment against sin isn't isn't just because you are um, vindictive. But rather, it's it's us who are vindictive. It's us who would be, in our sin, happy to be apart from you. Even as it destroys us. You don't want that for us. Thank you that you sent your Son. Thank you that there is forgiveness in Him. And I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning. I pray for my friends in this room. If there's anyone who's been in denial, Lord, open their eyes. Grant them this grace. And Lord, for those of us who have received that grace, help us to be grateful and thankful for it. Help us to live lives that are reflective of what You've done. Help us to have compassion for those around us who don't yet know. Help us to be bold to speak the truth to them in love. Lord, we pray that You would save sinners. We pray that Your grace would extend to more and more people for Your glory and for our good. Spirit, bring application to us all. I pray that in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.